You are listening to an Eyes on Washington podcast brought to you by Holland and Knight's Public Policy and Regulation Group. Our Public Policy and Regulation Group is a strong bipartisan team with deep ties throughout Washington, D.C. We have built a thriving government affairs practice through our depth of experience and diversity and by maintaining our bipartisan approach. Our State Attorneys General podcast series is hosted by former Deputy Attorney General of Virginia and Presidential Appointee at the U.S. Department of Commerce, Stephen Cobb. Through conversations with State Attorneys General, this series will dive into the importance and growing role of State Attorneys General while hearing firsthand on what they are working to accomplish in their communities. Hi, welcome back to another installment of Holland and Knight's Eyes on Washington podcast, your State Attorneys General edition. My name is Stephen Cobb. I'm a former Deputy Attorney General for the Commonwealth of Virginia and now a partner in Holland and Knight's public policy and regulatory team uh, based out of D.C. I'm super excited to have with me today another former Deputy Attorney General and Chief Deputy Attorney General from the great state of Florida, Trish Connors. Trish, Welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great, Stephen. Thanks for having me. You know, I, I started each one of these podcasts with some of our colleagues in the same way for our viewers or listeners, rather. And that is kind of focusing on how the role of state attorneys generals has grown over the last years and decades. And for many who thought of AGs as merely the top cop or prosecutor or dealing with the fly-by-night contractor, um, their role has really grown and expanded over the last few decades to the tune of tens of billions of dollars in fines and settlements, uh, to working in 50-state, multi-state investigations and litigation, to being uh, to having four former state attorneys general in the current presidential cabinet. So uh, there is no time in history where I think state attorneys generals have been higher profile. And so it's an exciting time to work in that space. Kind of with that background and that overarching theme, can you tell our listeners just a little bit about you and your background uh, working in the state attorney general's office in Florida? Sure. I, I um, spent my entire career basically in the state attorney general's office. I didn't intend to, but I spent about 35 years there. Shortly after clerking for a judge right out of law school, I had an opportunity to start um, in the criminal appeals division and was there for a few years before I moved to antitrust. And um, antitrust is what I did for the uh, remainder of my career, even as I got promoted through the office. So I spent 35 years, seven attorneys general from both sides of the aisle, and just a, you know, a wide array of experiences that, you know, when people ask me, I just retired recently, and when people ask me, you know, how, uh, whether I regret anything about my, you know, staying in public service and not going out and making the big bucks at firms or whatever, I say absolutely not, because it really gave me such a rich wealth of, of, of experiences and opportunities that um, I'm not sure I would have had in, in private practice. And it's certainly up my game because you're, you're up against some of the, some of the biggest um, and brightest attorneys on the other side of the table or as part of your team in a, in a very complex matter that you, you, you know, you really have to be, uh, you know, eating your Wheaties every morning to get going with to, to deal with that with with, with such esteemed uh, groups of people, and you learn so much. So I don't regret anything about my 35 years. It was a fabulous experience, and it gave me so many different avenues to uh, be creative and innovative and in approaches to litigation and resolution of cases. So that provides a nice segue. Um, in our last installment, we had. Tom Miller, the Attorney General of Iowa, on who was first elected 
as Attorney General in 1978. And so we talked a little bit about how he has seen the arc of state attorneys general change over time with their priorities and their their leadership roles. What are some of the things that you've seen change during your tenure as far as um, issues that have been on the forefront or how that work has been conducted or have you seen change or is it just that there's more focus now but it's been business as usual? I think it's a little bit of both. I think I think there is a, a, a tremendous focus now on state AGs for because they have uh, had more of a willingness to take on riskier issues. Um, when I first started in the antitrust space, and of course I ended up as, as a deputy and chief deputy overseeing all of the enforcement and then eventually the entire agency before before I left um, government service. So I saw the wealth of things, not just in the enforcement space, which has changed, but also more broadly on policy. And so there was a bias when I first started, a tremendous bias against state AGs. Um, in the enforcement space, it was all, uh, well, if the federal agencies are doing it, then the states are just following. There was never this assumption or belief that the states could actually originate their own cases, let alone then you know, combine the resources in multi-state cases or individually pursue cases as in litigation because they either didn't have the resources people thought or they didn't have the, 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 the experience. And so there was a lot of bias against state AGs and that clearly has changed because in recent years in the enforcement space, and I'll get more broadly in a minute, but in, this, in the enforcement space, states have been shown, exhibited, especially in the last four to five years, of extreme willingness to take on risky issues or issues that are cutting edge and basically uh, advance jurisprudence in areas where the federal agencies have chosen not to pursue cases, whether it's been a merger, a, a complicated merger matter, or a, um, a, a some innovative issue or, or you know, cutting edge issue in big tech or in in uh, pharma, for example. So they're starting to put their money where their mouth is and really go out there and do what they need to do to ensure that consumers are protected and that, you know, the right thing, that they eventually do the right thing. And that's key to what antitrust and consumer protection is about, but it's what attorneys general are about too. They're always going to try to do the right thing. They recognize and take seriously the representation of consumers and of state agencies for, uh, that may have lost money in a, in a, in a, in a price-fixing scheme or, or, or thing of that nature. More broadly, in the policy space, AGs have gotten you know, somewhat more political with a small p. They, they, they tend to now be uh, getting into issues that they didn't get into before. When I first started, state AGs generally did not weigh in on national policy issues. Now it's very common for state AGs to, to on a very bipartisan and partisan level, weigh in on certain issues. On the partisan side, it, it might be immigration or gun control or civil rights, uh, environmental issues like clean air, clean water, fracking, um, that sort of thing. And then on the more bipartisan space, it could be things like privacy, issues about pharmacy, you know, financial services, um, investor protection. It could be uh, HIPAA issues, um, healthcare issues, health fraud issues, government waste issues. So there's, there's, you'll see uh, comment letters and sign-on letters and amicus briefs that are signed by almost all the states on issues like, like that, whereas, you know, on the more partisan issues, you might only see about half the AGs, usually all of the same party, uh, writing a letter about a particular issue on gun control or, or something that's super important to 
the views of, of those attorneys general that they'll also want to come together and make a statement on. That's, that's relatively new. So I want to, before we dive into talking about antitrust, which I know is your, your bread and butter and your background, I want to ask you one other question. And so for context, I've also had the opportunity to teach a law school class in the role of state attorneys general. So this is a question that after several weeks of, of reading, I asked my students. And so uh, I, I want to get your thoughts on this as well, which is that I think after the tobacco settlement, you've seen an increased rise in multi-states, which is CAGs banding together for purposes of investigation and litigation. And so the question that I pose to my students often is, what is the primary factor that you see as having been a rise, led to the rise in multi-state action? And I think there's many good answers and reasons. It can be the increased speciality of the offices. It can be increased uh, willingness, as you mentioned, to step up and lead. Um, I think you can make an argument that it is some of the coalition building groups, whether that's NAG, CWAG, RAG, DAGA, that help coordinate and pull people together, at least more often. And, and in one text, they even just said, it's technology. You know, when you had to fax each other copies of, you know, 100-page briefs and letters, People, it was less conducive to working together. But, you know, in the, when you went to the internet age, when you could then email each other briefs and copies and comment, it made the court just the logistics of coordination that much easier. So it was a, a natural outcome of the improved communications. Acknowledging answers is probably many factors. Uh, is there any one that you think weighs particularly heavy on leading to the, the growth of multi-state enforcement efforts? I think uh, two things. I think, again, going back, I think there is a backdrop of changing perceptions. The, that bias I, I spoke about is, is, is shifting more to an awareness that state AGs are actually going to put their money where their mouth is. So now there's more of an awareness because in some, depending on the kind of law or kind of issue, the states have always been there. They've just never been thought of as being sort of a force. But I also think that there's more of a focus now on cutting edge stuff that, and there's much more of a willingness to take risk. So there was multi-state and there was multi-state. Before there was multi-state where they all got together regardless of what the law was, but you could pretty much bet your bottom dollar that it was gonna be resolved uh, before litigation and that there was gonna be some sort of settlement. And you know, some would say, uh, depending on the case, that it might have been a cheap settlement because the defense bar knew that um, there was probably little risk of litigation. Um, uh, there weren't necessarily going to be litigators. There weren't going to be AGs hiring law firms uh, that had you know deeper benches to be able to take on large contingents of lawyers representing large corporations. So there was less of a a concern that cases would sort of, from a defense perspective, get out of hand and become too expensive or whatever. Now that's not the case. Uh, state AGs are much more willing to retain outside counsel, um, even collectively. A few states are willing, as they did in T-Mobile Sprint, merger challenge to pay the firms that represent them um, on behalf of basically all the states that want to participate in that litigation. So that that's new. And then um, I think there's also a, a willingness to, to appreciate and understand that there's roles that um, from the AGs that they now take very, very seriously. And depending on the 
depending on the, and they always did, but now they're really recognizing their different, the different hats they can wear in multi-state matters. And they've broadened the kinds of theories that they bring cases on. And the best example is, which is a huge jump uh, from just taking on statutory, whether they're federal law or state law cases, um, is in opioids, the opioids litigation, which just is still is still pending. Um, those are uh, there's a big federal case, but that's um, in Cleveland. But that's all the um, cities and counties. There's, that's a private action um, where a bunch of private lawyers are. There, there's no state AG in that in that action. All of the opioid cases are filed in individual state courts and the defendants are all different, the theories are all different, and the remedies are all different. But one thing that they generally have in common across the board is they use as a, a primary claim um, common law. They claim public nuisance and they claim negligence against the opioids uh, uh, companies. And so that's new. You don't, you don't see multi-state actions based just merely on common law claims with a few other things added in like consumer protection and maybe RICO and stuff like that. But the primary claims um, are, are common law claims. And I think that, um, that shows you how far the AGs have come from the safe space that they were in maybe 20 years ago or 10 years ago to now you know, really pushing the envelope and taking on claims that they normally would not, not take on to address a problem that was out there that no one else knew how to address and that the federal agencies were not moving on in terms of a regulatory approach in any meaningful manner and that Congress wasn't acting on. So you, you, you see that. And then the last thing is really just filling, filling gaps. I mean, there's, there's areas where AGs are, are sort of just seeping into, collectively seeping into the space that, AG, uh, that federal agencies rather are not uh, able to do anything about because there's no national law. And there's no national overarching standard that can be applied. And the uh, issue that cries out there is privacy and data breach. There's absolutely no way that the federal agency agencies can do what the states can do, even though they have 56 different, and I'm counting the territories in D.C. and the six there, 56 different state laws on privacy and data breach. The gold standard, of course, now is California with a couple of other states that have um, passed similar very broad and overarching privacy laws. But it is the state AGs that are driving that privacy space until, until there is a, a national law passed. The kind of weird thing out of COVID was price gouging. There's no national price gouging law. And so we might see that again in some other national thing where because there's no national price fixing law, you know, I mean, price gouging law, the price gouging state laws are the ones that drove the drove the trend with everybody, you know, buying toilet paper and all this stuff. During, and, that, <laughs> yeah, and that really is a hodgepodge of laws because some only come in if there's a declared state of emergency or not. And then and some are just always on the books and some have both. And so, you know, even for companies figuring out who do business in 20 states, what the law is on how it affects their pricing is, is always a challenge. Yeah, those last two are, are super important for companies to really stay aware of because um, if it, it usually it's just a weather event with price gouging, but as we saw with COVID, it became a national issue that the price gouging laws, laws individually were not intended to address, but there you had it, right? It, somebody had to do it. 
Now, we've talked about a, a bunch of issues on the forefront of state AGs, but I, I do want to focus us on one particular area, um, which I know you have a strong background in, but it's, you know, setting the table for you. I was, I was at a dinner with some lawyers the other night, and someone said, uh, Stephen, you know, tell, tell me the, the, the three things you think state attorneys generals are going to be most focused on over the next year to 18 months. And one of the three that I mentioned was the antitrust days. And very good lawyers at the table, and more than one was, you know, they almost had whiplash and how quickly their, <laughs> their, their head turned around where they said, state AGs and, and, and antitrust? And I think that there is often a knowledge gap between what the public or what industry views as being a leader in the antitrust space and what has actually been brought to bear, particularly with state AGs in that space over the last decade. And I, I know you have a wealth of experience in the state AG office doing antitrust work. So, you know, before we get into some specific examples of what's going on now, maybe you can walk our listeners through a little bit kind of about what the space looked like when you started it and how that changed a bit of time. So antitrust is, is a unique, <clears throat> somewhat unique, I think it's basically unique um, area um, for AGs because, and I was trying to think of any other equivalent, I, I can't think of one, There's a, there is a foundation, a very firm foundation in, in federal law, um, and, and that is that they've always had a seat at the table to represent natural persons to recover treble damages for antitrust violations. It's, it's in the Clayton Act, um, the federal law. Section 4C gives them the uh, ability to represent natural persons, parents, patriae in antitrust cases. And um, I think for a long time, the, the defense bar and businesses were, didn't really focus on that because the federal agencies were, were sort of in the forefront, at least through the trade press and, you know, taking the lead supposedly on a lot of big cases. But Congress intended um, sort of a three-legged stool. Um, and one leg was the Department of Justice. Yes, they bring civil antitrust cases like Microsoft and others to test you know, the waters on cutting edge issues, but their primary focus is in criminal prosecution of antitrust cases, not civil enforcement. So they don't represent consumers. The Federal Trade Commission uses Section 5 of the FTC Act to, um, as their foundation to pursue antitrust cases. And they don't use the Sherman Act necessarily, but the, the, the Federal Trade Commission Act. And they, are, they look more broadly at civil issues, but their role has always been basically to stop any competitive conduct and to have equitable remedies. Um, and they have administrative proceedings as well as federal district court proceedings. So in the states were left to recover damages for consumers. And that, that's, um, that's, a, that's a very discreet area uh, and a remedy that is exclusive to state uh, enforcement in the federal space. So they're, they're part of propping up the stool of antitrust jurisprudence and enforcement in this country. And um, they are becoming more and more aware of that. So we always had that federal foundation and we were able to work with other states in a multi-state capacity going back to the mid eighties on antitrust cases. When I first started um, though, the multi-state cases were limited to uh, 
certain areas like resale price maintenance and, and looking at, at, at per se violations of the antitrust laws that would garner quick settlements because you could establish pretty quickly a per se violation and then sit down and negotiate. And those were the cases that were being handled. Um, I worked on those, but I also, in Florida, we were extremely proactive. We were a fairly small office of about five attorneys of five support staff. We had an economist on staff, which we still have in our office, which is increasingly something that state AGs do. Um, and when I first started, I, I did the, um, I came in on one of the best cases ever. I thought they were all like this, which was the school milk bid rigging cases. Florida was the state to start those cases. One of my colleagues had worked on a dairy farm or his family owned one in Indiana. And he says, you know, they used to rig bids for school milk contracts in Indiana. I wonder if they're doing it in Florida. So we started collecting the bidding information from all 67 counties in Florida and were able to establish, you know, issues where root density wasn't being employed in any rational way that you drive by a school that you didn't even bid on to service another school and somebody else had that bid and nobody was making money off this unless they were um, rigging the bids and school uh, contracts were unique in that they were let during the summer months prior to the next school year so they were all done at the same time so these guys could sit down literally sit down and work out who was going to get what contracts and what part of the state. So we ended up developing that case into 20 witnesses who were ready to testify, which resulted in a $34 million settlement, which was trouble damages at the time. And uh, that was the largest state antitrust recovery uh, at the time as well. So that segued into Info formula, contact disposable contact lenses, chemical water treatment products. Florida did all of, originated a lot of those cases. Several other states were doing the same thing. Uh, California was starting to sue a group of insurers and reinsurers. You know, several other states were starting to, you know, test the waters on some important antitrust issues, but it hadn't come to the multi-state world yet. And that was my background. I, I worked with some of the best plaintiff's lawyers and some of who, who would, would join our multi-district litigation. Um, I learned from some of the best on, you know, discovery issues and strategy and litigation strategy. And, um, and that, was, that was how I cut my teeth originally. And then in the early 2000s, I became chair of the Multi-State Antitrust Task Force from 2001 to 2005, which is a role that helps coordinate multi-state matters. And beginning in the late 90s, when we did the contact lens litigation and when Microsoft, um, when, when the state case in Microsoft was evolving, that's when the space really got active for state AGs that well beyond uh, just one-off cases or bid rigging or, you know, per se price fixing violations. Then they started getting a lot more creative in the space and willing to push the envelope. You know, Microsoft was quite a pushing of the envelope. Um, you know, there were a number of other pay for delay cases in, in pharmaceutical space and other things that were being brought during that time that really was pushing the envelope. Um, on issues that were novel. Let's unpack that a little bit. When you say when you say pushing the envelope, what are some of the, the areas, both in the past few years, but also you know looking ahead, that AGs are going to focus on when it comes to anti-competitive conduct? So going forward, I think um, you know the big tech stuff is huge, and that they're going to be looking at you know 
stifling of innovation, the um, the inability for you know startup companies to overcome huge barriers to entry to get into um, the tech space. Um, you know, even though there have been recent setbacks for the state AGs, they're not going to give up on the issue of acquisitions. They may start looking as well, as well the federal agencies at tech acquisitions and particularly differently as to what really the motivation is of um, a big um, company or a telecom company for that matter to acquire a nascent competitor. You know, is that, you know, are they just really trying to stifle somebody's, you know, genius idea in the next stage of, of innovation and tech? You know, in the pharma space, that's not, that's not done yet. Um, there's a lot going on in pharma. Um, that continues to evolve where pharmaceutical companies are going to try to protect their patents for as long as they possibly can um, to ensure the, you know, top profit. Um, you know, we have the generic drugs antitrust case pending now in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania where a group of generic drug makers just, you know, um, their salespeople and, and middle management in, in, in particular. Um, yeah, watch yourself, Trish. You said, you said we. It's, 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 it's formerly. It's they now. Yeah, I they. still talk. You know, yeah. I, have, I have prior colleagues that have been out of the office for like 20, 20 years, and they still do that. It's hard, it's hard to break the habit. But, <laughs> but yeah, so there's, so, there's, so there's a number of, of areas like that. I think privacy, outside of the antitrust space, I think privacy is going to be huge. I think data breach is going to be huge. I don't think that's done yet. Health fraud and health issues, hospital consolidation on the in the vertical integration in healthcare is going a mile a minute and it's going to cost consumers an enormous amount of money. And remember, that's what AGs are looking at. Is there a consumer impact? Is there an impact on state agency costs? Are there things in local markets that are going to change the comp you know the competitive landscape to the point that you know consumers will be indirectly affected these are all things that you know will continue to be uh, on the forefront in that antitrust space well, you know what are some of the the criteria or factors that you know the offices either individually or part of that larger committee look at to decide whether they think that this is an issue right for multi-state action so every state makes its own individual decisions about that sort of thing and um but generally speaking the common um areas are you know, first and foremost, um, who's been harmed in the state? Is, is the, is the, are the consumers paying too much for something? Are state agencies, you know, as a result of price fixing, did they pay too much directly or indirectly for a particular product? Pharma is an example. But when we're looking at this in the antitrust context, some of that is hypothetical, right? Because like you, you used barriers to entry um, in, into a particular market. Regardless, regardless of what market sector that is. Does that usually come from a mom and pop shop complaining about barriers to entry? Uh, or is that done in the ether, kind of in the abstract, in the ether? Can I you understand that distinction that I'm making between price gouging, at least you know, in my experience, you see it, someone, you know, you have a complaint line, people, people are calling in. Yeah. Um, how do you get the complaints is what you're, how do you know? Yeah. Right. Well, but I mean, it, it seems to be more of a market focus analysis than it is a, you know, John Q plaintiff. So it, it really depends on the, the kind of, the kind of case of if some monopolization or, or, you know, merger transaction that you're concerned might be anti-competitive, then, you know, you might look at the markets more than you would in a, uh, in a, in a, 
pure, you know, price fixing case where it's clear that, you know, you're trying to prove a conspiracy. Um, so in the, in the, in the conspiracy kind of arena, you have to do some deep diving. Uh, you know, there's usually going to be something that is happening that's against the best interest of the corporation that seems somewhat obvious, but you really need subpoena power to delve deeper. And it might be that you have a whistleblower or somebody coming to you and telling you about something, or you might just see from an econometric perspective that prices are high and you don't know why they don't, it doesn't make sense that they're high, you know, to the extent that there's supply and demand issues and other things. That's where your economists become very important in an antitrust situation because you need to rule out all the rational explanations for what might be going on. And then you may find as you do, you delve deeper in, in your, um, in your discovery, your investigation, that the barriers to entry are not as high or as high as you thought, you know, that there are easier ways for different things uh, to occur. So the, so the, um, the other thing is, you know, are there alternatives to, uh, are there alternatives to what, what is occurring? So in the, in the, in the monopolization space, somebody comes to you usually, it's usually a competitor saying, you know, Joe Blow uh, Inc. is, is, uh, is, you know, doing this and it's anti-competitive and I can't compete equally in that space. Well, they may be looking at a much smaller market than what you can legitimately prove in court. There may be, uh, they may be looking at the market for widgets when it's really widgets and about 12 other things that could be substituted for widgets. And if there are things that can be substituted and other potential competitors out there, other competitors out there, then your market for the, your product market is going to be a lot bigger. So, you know, a lot of times we'll get folks coming in and complaining about a competitor trying to get an upper hand in the market. But when you do the analysis, it just doesn't wash that we can legitimately bring a case. And then there are times when there's no replacement for what is being proposed. And so that's, that's what you're kind of seeing in the big tech area now. If the barriers to entry are so high, um, that nobody can provide a substitute what's, for what's being offered by the dominant player, then you're, you know, then, then, then you're likely to have a stifling of innovation. So that's what happened with Microsoft. That's what potentially is happening with big, big tech now. You know, that's, these are things that, you know, it's going to be really hard for mom and pop to come in and even try to compete with behemoth the size of a Microsoft. I want to shift ever so slightly. And this is along the lines of a question that I've uh, discussed with General Donovan and General Miller. I want to get your thoughts, um, pressing that with, Working with state AGs and the state regulators in general, it's often a bit of a black box. There's no, you know, rules of procedure necessarily when dealing with 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 state AGs, and so particularly with, you know, companies that thankfully don't have regular interactions with state AGs as in a regulatory enforcement context. What are some of the things you see as either uh, best practices or common errors that you think are, you know? good for industry to recognize when dealing with the state attorney's general office, whether that is pre-litigation investigation or, or when you've received a CID, obviously that changes along, along that path, but what are, give some advice to move forward. 
So I think, you know, I'm speaking to, you know, legitimate corporations now, not, not, you know, because, <laughs> because you might as well, for, you might as well forget it if you're, if you're a, uh, right, if you're a fly by night, <laughs> machine, then that's not very right, yes. so, so that's, that's caveat that, yeah. but for legitimate companies um, that are really, you know, not interested in being in the crosshairs of state AGs, it always helps to um, have a transparency in your, your approach and to never forget that you need to keep, you keep AGs in mind on certain issues, especially if you have products and services that are in local markets where state AGs are going to be paying attention. So um, it's important to have um, perhaps even uh, existing relationships. There's lots of organizations like the AG Alliance and, and uh uh, you know, NAG and National Association of Attorneys General and, you know, even the more political ones, which are Raga and Daga, that, um, that uh, you know, it doesn't hurt to have at least a government relations person or someone who does, like you, Steve, in a state AG practice, get engaged in, um, in, in you know, developing or ensuring that you continue in your case, because you knew a lot of the folks from your prior life, that you continue to have um, that those relationships and to have them in place already when something might happen so that it's easier. Let's say, Stephen, you represent ABC company and they're a legit company and they hardly ever have problems. But if you already have an existing relationship with the state AG folks, both at the staff level and their front offices, they're going to call you as a courtesy nine times out of 10 to say, hey, we've got this issue, we wanna send a subpoena, but maybe we can sit down and talk about it first, or, hey, we've got this issue, we're sending the subpoena, are you willing to take uh, service for it? And then you start that process of having a, a, um, a very reasonable, rational conversation about what the issue is and whether it can be resolved without litigation. That's super, super, super important. In the price gouging space, in particular with the little mom and pops, a lot of them, or when we did a vaping investigation in Florida, a lot of them just ignored our subpoenas. They just, eh, not going to worry about it. We're just going to ignore the subpoena. And we had, you know, they delayed discovery. They ramped up our costs because we had to go to court. And, uh, you know, so the second thing is, you know, if you do get a subpoena, always, you know, always call because you may look at it and go, oh, my God, this is just enormous. And it's asking too much. It's too much of a burden. Well, you know, again, state AGs are asking for the kitchen sink a lot of times, but if you go, that's because they may not know how you're structured, they may not know how, you know, how you're set up, so they end up, they end up asking everything, so you, you just need to work with them through your lawyers to, to narrow what, narrow it down to what makes sense, and the last thing is confidentiality is always going to be an issue, because you know, you'll have a concern about how my document's going to be shared. Uh, speaking from a state that has one of the most open record states in the uh, statutes in the country, um, we're probably the lowest common denominator. And if you can meet our standards, you can meet everybody's standards. But confidentiality is really important to companies, and understandably so in this day and age. Um, and so how the, how the documents are going to be shared and all of that usually ends up being put forth in a confidentiality agreement. So it doesn't hurt to stop and talk about that. It should not be used as a delay tactic because states are not interested in spending months negotiating that instead of getting to the nitty gritty of a, a case. So transparency, forthrightness, being willing to uh, have that conversation and find out if there's ways to resolve the the issues. Um, I might add one other thing because you mentioned complaints, consumer complaints. 
you know, that is, is that's always a huge issue when, when, when you deal, especially in the consumer protection space. And people come in and they'll say, well, what complaints did you get about us? What are they? And you, you, you share the complaints and they look at them and they, well, these aren't that bad. And we say, well, they break down into like four or five categories and there's hundreds of them. So we need to address each one of these things. It's not enough to say you're taking care of those, those things or you're doing the individual one-offs and trying to clear the decks to show that you've done your part. That's great. And that shows very proactive attention, but you need to tell us what business model changes you're going to make to make sure that we stop getting those complaints. That's, that's absolutely key for a business. Well, one of the things I've found to be slightly unique with working with state, age, state attorneys general as opposed to some of our federal counterparts is that with the overwhelming majority of them being elected officials and many of them coming from having been a state representative or a state senator before, there is a bit of that which is you know the old Tip O'Neill, all politics is local. And so if you're dealing with you know 20 state inquiry, I want, I always stress that you need to know exactly what your impact is within that state. They're wanting to know where you do business, the number of consumers you have, the number of employees you have, um, because a lot of these folks know their communities at that micro level, and they want to know exactly, I mean, for some of the, our state AGs who are, former, again, former state reps or state senators, I mean, they, they know their former districts. I mean, and if you're, you know, they, they'll want to know how, how much business that you're, the company that you're representing does there. And sometimes that comes in at a micro level that you don't get with your, with your federal counterparts. And you raise an interesting point because in the antitrust space, the diff one difference between the federal and state uh, enforcement uh, role is that the AG wears many, many hats. In Florida, and uh, this is all fascinating to me because it's, it's, you know, the AG is a cabinet officer overseeing all sorts of things involving financial services, insurance regulation, you know, works on state land purchases. Um, she's a, she's a, uh, you know, she, she's, she also has various roles overseeing the pension fund and other things. So it goes well beyond um, enforcement and represents, you know, the legislature and a number of things, defends the constitutionality of state statutes, even though we know they probably are unconstitutional sometimes, that is the role that they have to take on. And so there's a lot, there's a wealth of interests. This is super important. There's a wealth of interests that state AGs have. So when you're coming in with the one issue, like a consumer protection or antitrust or Medicaid fraud issue, um, the other issues may come into play in terms of what the attorney general may be thinking about or what the front office staff anyway may be thinking about. A prime example is in a merger transaction. If there are local markets or if, if there's a dominant presence in the state by a big bank or a big mortgage servicer or something along those lines where lots of consumers are going to be affected, that's important to address from an antitrust or consumer protection perspective. But you know what? The flip side is if you merge, you're going to be closing stores, your people are going to be losing their jobs, local economies are going to be deeply impacted, and a state AG is going to be just incredibly aware of, of that impact on the economy to the point that unlike the federal enforcement agencies, which are purely antitrust and consumer protection, pr protection oriented in terms of their remedies, um, you may see an AG wanting to put in there 
you know, are you going to keep these bank tellers employed? Are you going to, you know, is, are these um, retail stores going to stay open in particular areas? In the telecom space, we had, um, we had in T-Mobile Sprint, we made sure that uh, 5G was going to be available sooner rather than later in rural areas of, of the state where there was very little competition for cell phone service. And in our big, long state, there's a lot of rural gaps in cell phone service. And so we wanted to make sure there was availability and some competition on price for people living in rural areas. That had nothing to do with the antitrust stuff, but it was really important to the quality of service they were going to be providing in the state to our consumers. Trish, we're running up on, on out of time. So I wanted to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us and be a guest on our podcast. And also thank you so much for your decades of service as a state employee to the, the citizens in the state of Florida. Um, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Um, and to our listeners, thanks again. This is uh, Stephen Cobb, and this has been Holland and Knight's Eyes on Washington podcast, our state attorney's general edition. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for listening to an Eyes on Washington podcast brought to you by Holland and Knight's Public Policy and Regulation Group. For more information on our Public Policy and Regulation Group, please visit hklaw.com slash PPR.